Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Kayla Diaz, a sociolinguist who specializes in childhood and family bilingualism. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband Alfredo and their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Kayla is the director of Bilinguitos, an educational platform and online community for parents raising bilingual kids. Kayla also hosts the Bilingual Parenting Podcast. In this conversation, we talk about Kayla's experiences growing up bilingual in a monolingual home and her experiences now raising her own bilinguita or little bilingual. We discuss common myths about bilingualism and ways that parents can support bilingualism in their own children. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thanks for being here. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So you run Bilinguitos. So we're going to talk a lot about bilingualism, but I'd love to first hear about your own experiences growing up and what role languages played in your life as a child. Yes. Yeah. Let's start at the very beginning. Um, So I was raised to be bilingual in a monolingual home. So I usually like let that sink in because people are like, wait, so many questions. How did that happen? Um, Neither one of my parents speaks Spanish fluently, but my mom has always liked the language and she always wished that she did speak it fluently. And so, um, you know, she did the classic high school classes, probably college as well. But when she had me, um, she started meeting other families that were raising their kids to be bilingual. And, and you know, the, now it's more common, but 20 something, 30 years ago, it was like not quite as mainstream, quote unquote. Um, but she, she was very interested in that just because like, like I said, she had always really loved Spanish. And so she, it was almost happenstance, but she was being proactive at the same time. I ended up going to a daycare, um, like a home daycare near where she worked, which was like a home run daycare from a family from Peru. And a lot of the teachers were Spanish dominant. And so with the kids and in the daycare, all of us kids, they would speak Spanish. And so my mom started realizing, oh, like Kayla's getting this kind of immersion experience of Spanish. And it wasn't that it was kind of short lived. It was less than two years that I was in that daycare, but it was when I was really young. So those really early years. And so once that base was kind of laid, she decided to keep going with it. So all throughout elementary school, middle school, I was always in Spanish classes. We did travel a little bit. So it was kind of a mixture of of methods and how how my bilingualism foundation was laid. And it's important to, to note, there's lots of different kinds of bilingualism. And a lot of times bilingualism is born out of like a necessity where either a family moves and they have to learn a new language or yeah, like the family really wants to preserve their, their home language. And so they make sure that that happens. And my bilingualism experience was definitely born more out of kind of privilege. It was a luxury, it wasn't a necessity. 
which is important to acknowledge. Like those two bilingualism experiences can be very different. But I think it's also empowering for families to know that there's so many ways to go about bilingualism, even if the parents don't speak it fluently, like the target language, it can still be done. So yeah, that's kind of my my backstory. Awesome. What was your um, like emotional connection like to Spanish, to the Spanish language and to, um, you know, different cultures and countries that speak Spanish when you were growing up? That's a great question. So for me, it was also it was always like um, a fun thing. So I have a younger sister. She's four years younger than me. And so for us, my dad never really was part of the learning experience. He is very much so now that I have my daughter and he's learning from her. But for me, my mom and my sister, it was kind of like this thing that we all did together. And so um, we would bring books home from the library or there's this video program called Muzzy. I don't know if you're familiar with Muzzy, but it's like, yeah, I think they've redone it. It's um, like more modernized now, but it was like just this cartoon program that taught you Spanish. So that was very much part of like our Spanish curriculum, quote unquote, at home. And so it was always linked to a lot of like happy, fun memories. And then with traveling, I remember going to we were in Spain for um, my dad's cousin's wedding because my dad's family is all from uh, England. And so. He, his cousin is marrying somebody from Spain. And so the wedding was in Spain. So seven-year-old me gets to go to this wedding in Spain and it was really fun. But I remember we were at a playground um, and my parents were just like, go play, go make some friends. You've been learning some Spanish, like go use it. And I was just kind of like, okay. And I remember like rehearsing in my head what I needed to say, like, hola, quieres jugar conmigo? And I remember like, (laughs) it's now or never, like I got to use this Spanish if I want to make some friends. And just having kind of like little experiences like that sprinkled throughout, it helped give me a, a kind of perspective of Spanish. Like there's whole countries of people and kids just like me, but they speak Spanish. So it's not just something we're learning just because it's a whole language. So um, it was always like that. Those are the kind of memories that I built around Spanish growing up. Yeah, I love that. So then tell me about your decision to get your master's in linguistics. Yes, yes. It's kind of funny because there's probably some statistic about how many freshmen end up changing their majors before really landing on what they truly study in college. And that was totally me. I applied to school or applied to college for graphic design. Then I switched to elementary education before finally landing on linguistics. So it definitely wasn't like uh, going straight to linguistics. Um, But I probably should have known from the get-go that I was going to end up doing something with language because I had that experience of growing up bilingual, um, at least having a very solid base in bilingualism. And then I also studied Latin and Greek in high school, like ancient Greek, not even modern Greek that I could speak with people. So I always had a lot of kind of language in my curriculum. I was homeschooled, by the way, if anyone's like, where are you learning ancient (laughs) Greek? Um, Yeah, homeschool, a little bit of a language nerd. And so that was part of my my high school curriculum. So my my brain had always been trained to kind of think about language systematically beyond just how is it used for communication, but how can we break it down and look at the conjugations and kind of see it more systematically. So when I finally did decide, because I was in elementary education, but then I was like, I don't really want to teach all these subjects, you know, 
shout out all, to all the elementary school teachers, but teaching all like the history and the science and the social studies and the, I was just like, I don't, I don't see myself doing this long term. So I ended up not continuing to pursue early childhood education and yeah, early, early elementary education and then switched to linguistics, figuring that I would kind of find my concentration eventually, but I knew that I wanted to do something with language and maybe, you know, teach in a immersion school or some kind of still working with kids, but having to do with language specifically. So that's how I landed on linguistics. Oh, awesome. And did you ever end up teaching uh, English or Spanish at a school? Yes. Um, so I taught English. I lived in Nicaragua for a year and a half teaching English at a preschool. And then after that, I ended up starting a Spanish immersion preschool in my area that ran for four school years, which I mean, it started out as Bilinguitos, but what Bilinguitos looks like now is different than back then. So it started out as an in-person Spanish immersion preschool and after school program. So yes, I did. I got to kind of bring the teaching aspect into it and the language aspect into it. Tell me a bit about living in Nicaragua and what that experience was like. It was amazing. I I loved that experience. I was, it was kind of like um, I finished my associate's degree and it's like a two-year degree. And then before going and finishing my four-year degree, I just like, I wanted, actually it was before I even landed on linguistics. Um, but I knew I was like, okay, I'm not going to continue in this education degree. I kind of want to take some time to decide what do I want to study. So that's why it was kind of in that random middle of college. I was 20. Um, but it was really cool. I was teaching in a school. It was I was working with trilingual preschoolers because they spoke the indigenous language there um, in, what is it, eastern Nicaragua the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua. So that was their first language. They were learning Spanish as kind of the the language of school and business. And then they were learning English on top of all of that. So that was a really, really cool experience. Wow. That's awesome. Do you think that that um, informed your work then with the Spanish preschool or bilinguitas at all? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was like, it was what really solidified one, my own bilingualism, because um, I was finally in a, in a situation where I needed to speak Spanish. Otherwise, I wasn't going to be able to do what I was there doing. I mean, I was teaching English, but I was still interacting with my coworkers, with a bunch of other, I was tutoring in English, but I needed to use Spanish to do so. And so it was kind of like sink or swim, put your bilingualism base to the test. And it solidified my fluency in Spanish. Um, but then also, yeah, that's also what led me to decide, okay, I definitely want to study linguistics, especially because I was not only like solidifying my Spanish, but now I was learning that that other language is called Miskitu, the indigenous language of Eastern Nicaragua. And that was kind of like, whoa, because it's not related to English, Spanish. It has it's its own language family, essentially. So that was like, wow, now I'm seeing language through like the lens of linguistics and like I yeah there was no textbooks on the language I couldn't go do Duolingo in the language I had to do it just by like sitting on the floor and listening to the preschoolers talk and showing asking them like pointing to my head and having them tell me the word for head and then pointing to my hand and having them there was no I mean we did have common language we could have used Spanish but it was like it was it was really cool Oh, wow. That is really cool, especially from, um, from a linguistics perspective. Exactly. I was nerding out. I was like, yay, language. (laughs) 
tell me about how you met your husband and what your language journey has been with him. Did you always speak in Spanish together or did it evolve? I love this. Yeah, no one ever asks me this question, so <laughs> I love it. Um, so he and I met after I finished my, I was finishing my four-year degree. So I was back in the States. I had not yet started Bilinguitos and I just wanted to get kind of like a, a part-time job before my life is crazy before moving to Peru, which was <laughs> my next chapter of my story. So I, I was I was just looking for a part-time job and I just happened to get one at a Mexican restaurant in my own hometown. And they hired me pretty much on the spot because they needed waitresses, but then they ended up putting me as bartender and he was the lead bartender, the one who was training me. And so that's how we met. It was great. Um, and so pretty quickly, just from going from like work friends to like, oh, I think I like you. And then um, the relationship happened after that. But language wise, I actually pretended not to know any Spanish when I first met him, like first day on the job. <laughs> I made him so nervous though, because he definitely, he's bilingual as well, but he definitely prefers Spanish. So he was like trying to explain different, you know, recipes for making margaritas and stuff. He was trying to explain it to me in English. Yeah, in English. And then finally I was like, um, maybe another coworker came up and I, I I revealed essentially that I did indeed speak Spanish. And he's like, oh, thank God, because I want to be able to explain all these things to you in Spanish because I'm just way more comfortable that way. So uh, from the very beginning, besides my like, you know, 30 minutes of pretending not to speak Spanish, uh, we have always, Spanish has always been, Spanish and Spanglish, but more so Spanish, has always been our language that we use together. So then did you go to Peru and he stayed in the States? Mm -hmm. We did long distance. Um, it was just six months that I was in Peru, but I was doing a kind of like post-grad linguistics program at a at a university in Lima. And yeah, it was six months. It felt like way longer because when you first start a relationship and then you're long distance and you're missing them. And um, but yeah, I, we've, I finished that out and then I came back and we continued and we got engaged and we got married. So, yes. Nice. So um, <laughs> so in your, you know, timeline, which comes next? Did you have your daughter or did you start Bilinguitos first? I started Bilinguitos. So I started Bilinguitos in 2000. 16 that same year i was half the year in peru i came home and started bilinguitos and then that next semester i started my master's degree um but it started out very part-time i was just teaching one day a week it was kind of like a uh like a community center hey come to the spanish classes two hours once a week um it started out with a lot of friends kids it was kind of like almost like that was kind of my only network at that point because i wasn't a mom yet and i had not been in the mom scene. So um, that's how it started, like really small. And then the next year, the next school year, it grew a ton because parents were finding out about it. And a lot of people want their kids to learn Spanish for so many different reasons. So it grew pretty quickly. Um, so that's, that's the timeline there. And that ran for four school years right before the fourth school year or in the middle of the fourth school year actually is when I had my daughter um, in 2019. And then that was at the very end of 2019. And then COVID happened a couple of months later. And that's what ultimately ended the in-person section of Bilinguitos. But also it was it was that COVID was really what ended it in that moment. But I was also transitioning into that role of being a mom. And so I was I was grateful to be able to have more time at home with her 
and to be able to turn the business into something that I do now run from home and can still really spend a whole lot of time with her and not feel like I'm, you know, 50 hours a week. Cause I mean, the program grew and it was going to be one of those things where it was going to be a full on daycare Monday through Friday. And that would have been really hard for me to both be mm -hmm. director of that and trying to juggle new momhood with a three month old. So, yeah. yeah. So it worked out, it all worked out very how it needed to work out, but it was very, it was a quick growth and then a quick end with everything in 2020. So tell me a little bit about being a mom to a bilingual daughter. Um, did you always know that you wanted to raise your daughter bilingual? I'm guessing yes, but I also want to know um, if there were any surprises or if it looks different now than what you had imagined or than what it did in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, it's been so fun and it's been so like humbling and a privilege to be able to to be part of her bilingualism journey, which looks very different than my own bilingualism journey. Um, so it's been, uh, it, I've just loved the journey so far. She's three and a half. So I know we have a long ways to go still with the journey, um, but I did, I always kind of knew I was gonna at some level instill bilingualism in my kids just cause I had it from literally 10 months old onward. And it's one of my favorite things about myself. <laughs> it's just like bilingualism is so cool. Why would I not want to pass that on to my kids? Um, but then of course, when I started dating Alfredo and we got uh, engaged and then married, we knew for sure then that we would definitely want to use Spanish as our main language at home, just cause it was already his and my, our <laughs> language that we use together. And just for him to be able to pass on his native language, his heart language, and his culture as well. He he moved to the States in his young 20s. So his entire childhood, his entire upbringing was in Mexico. So it was really important. I don't know if I even mentioned that before that he's from Mexico. But for him, that was super important to to keep that alive and pass that down and not let that something be something that would be lost in his kids. So yeah, so we knew for sure that we were going to raise her to be bilingual and any future kids. Um, and it, it's looked yes and no about the surprises. Um, I had a good idea more or less of what it was going to take to raise a bilingual child, the different methods, just because with my master's degree, that is what I ended up specializing in was childhood bilingualism and then family bilingualism, like the different methods to do and what family language plans should look like. Um, so I definitely had kind of a good idea going into it. But I also had, I wondered, I mean, it's not my native language. How was it gonna feel for me raising a child in my non-native language? Um, were we gonna really stick to our plan or were we gonna derail? Because uh, there's just so many factors, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I, I'll say this, that at, at this point, I feel like we have really, really done a good job sticking to the plan that we set from the beginning, which is Spanish at home, her main language right now is still Spanish. She gets English from preschool and from my my parents, more so my dad. My mom does both with her. Um, but for the most part, her right now she's she's dominant in Spanish, but her English is like, you can see it developing, which is fun. Um, but at the beginning it was, when she was a newborn, I had to keep like reminding myself, okay, the plan is Spanish, the plan is Spanish. And um, at that point, because I had taught 
preschool, I had a lot of kind of the nursery rhymes in Spanish and a lot of that kid directed language in Spanish, but it still took myself kind of reminding or it took me reminding myself Spanish, especially when they're a newborn and they're not like, or even when they're three months old, four months old. And yeah, they're like looking at you, but they're not talking back. They're not even making much babbling. And so it feels almost awkward talking to this tiny little baby, even more so in my non-native language. And then once she was older and more responsive, you know, starting to babble back and then repeat words. And then once she was like 18 months and it was clear that she understood directions and, and could actually you know, engage with me at some level, it was like, okay, this is all, this is all paying off. And now she just rattles on these elaborate stories in Spanish. And it's just like, this is so cool. It's so cool to see Spanish firsthand developing as a first language, because that was not my case. My, my first language was English. My dominant language has always been English. So yeah, that's kind of been our journey so far. Um, Did you ever get any pushback from family members that um, you know, had opinions about what you were choosing to do. Yeah, I know that happens so often with my immediate family. No, because they knew <laughs> they knew better. They're like, Kayla, Kayla knows what she's doing. I'm not going to question it. Um, my mom, obviously, because she instilled bilingualism in me has always been all about it. My dad has always been super supportive as well. But I know for him, it's been harder. He's kind of had to make the bigger quote unquote sacrifice of not being able to fully understand everything that you know his granddaughter is saying because she's still spanish dominant and he doesn't speak spanish um but he's always been super supportive and like he's really good with his english input for her and being really patient with her um extended family members have probably been a little bit more skeptical they haven't necessarily voiced it all that much but you know it is it is out of the norm for a monolingual english family all of our generations being like interesting my great granddaughter or my great niece is spanish dominant still at three and a half so um i'm sure for them it's been like interesting like interesting to watch from a, you know from their perspective but i do know that a lot of times families can get pushback from you know in-laws from their own parents because it does go against the norm a little bit especially if you're focusing on the target language more than English, more than the majority language. Um, but there's a rhyme and reason for doing that. So I guess if mm. if the pair if anybody is expecting or experiencing some kind of pushback, just kind of walking the family members through why you're doing what you're doing will help them to kind of get on board a little bit. It's not usually that pe- parent or you know extended families like we don't like bilingualism. It's just a more of a interesting wait why are you doing it like this and so just kind of walking them through it is always helpful yeah yeah definitely um so tell me a bit about back to bilinguitos tell me a bit about what that program looks like nowadays so it started out as an in-person uh spanish immersion preschool and what has it evolved to become Yes. So even back when it was in person, I did start the Bilingual Parenting Podcast, which has two seasons out on the podcast. And I one day we'll get back into the recording studio and do a third podcast, a third season. Um, but that was kind of my my outlet for all of the stuff I was learning as a grad student. I was teaching Spanish with the preschoolers, and that's kind of one focus is teaching Spanish. But I really wanted to be able to communicate with parents as well about the how to 
because um, there's always so many questions that come up about how do I raise a bilingual kid? What do I do if this happens? What method should I use? What happens when they refuse to speak it? What do I do? So, so many questions. And so I did want, I always wanted Bilingüitos to be um, not just about teaching Spanish, but also educating parents on, on the how-to. So that did start from almost the beginning. And then once we did transition to online um, and focusing more on kind of the online resources after COVID, that became a big part of it. So with my Instagram and um, some workshops and stuff that I do and one-on-one -on -one one -on -one kind of sessions with parents, there is a lot more of that side of things of the, how do I go about raising a bilingual child? And then I still do a lot of the Spanish stuff. I have a team of teachers as well. And we do virtual classes for babies through 10 year olds, um, like through Zoom, but still hands-on. And we're up and dancing, we're playing with Play-Doh, we're drawing. So um, yeah, that's kind of what it looks like now on the day-to-day. And um, and there's also a play group meetup as well, right? Group of play. Yeah. Is yep. that right? I know. So many different branches. Yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? That? Yes. So um, back in 2000, maybe 17 is when I started a in-person play group here. If you guys remember, I don't I didn't have kids at this point because 2019 is when my daughter was born. But I started the play group for our preschool families to be able to get together not just kind of drop the kids off at preschool and then not be part of the bilingualism. I wanted them to have kind of a, a setting where they could talk to the other parents about what it's like to raise a bilingual child. So we started Grupo Play, Grupo Play, our play group for bilingual families. And then I also did it kind of selfishly knowing that when I did have kids, I was going to want something like that to exist. So I was like, why not just start it? Um, so after COVID made us pause for a little bit but then in 2021 I started really meeting with that same kind of in-person play group in our area again in northern Virginia and then it started like people started saying oh well, how can I get one of these started in my area and so I set up kind of like um a system or a a format for how people can get their own group of play started in their their area so we have like over 30 locations now around the U.S. Wow. And parents and or other bilingual families are regularly meeting and doing a play group for the kids, but the parents get to chat. And then just like a community of families who are seriously pursuing bilingualism, because it can get lonely um, if you're the only one that you know is that's raising a bilingual kid and you're talking to other moms at the playground and they're like, kind of like, yeah, but why do you care so much about Spanish? And you're like, because I do. And yeah, it's helpful to have people around you that get it. And so that's been a cool kind of yeah, outpouring of bilingüitos is all of these groups and they're all led by volunteer leaders, parents who decide they want to get one started in their area. So that's been really cool. I love that. Yeah. I mean, community is such an important part of raising a bilingual child. Um, so that's really amazing that it's grown to so, so many chapters. That's so exciting. Yeah. I'm excited and more are coming this summer. So it just keeps growing. What do you think for you personally, but also from what you hear, just talking to other parents raising bilingual children, what are some of the biggest challenges that people face and what's some advice that you give to parents about raising bilingual yeah. children? I think the number one biggest challenge for a parent who wants to raise a bilingual 
child is that, especially in the U.S., is that our society isn't really set up for bilingualism in the fact that it's not needed. English, people can get away with just speaking English just fine. Um, and so a lot of times, if bilingualism isn't a necessity, it's not it's not pursued or it just kind of fizzles out. So for example, a child, let's say they only hear Spanish at home, but once they get into kindergarten, they start to see, oh, English, 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 English is all around me. My, my friends speak it, my teacher speaks it, my coaches speak it. When we go to the store, even my mom is speaking it with the store clerk and asking questions of where can I find it? Well, you know, where can I find the cereal aisle five? Like everything's happening in English around the child. And so they start to see We'll use Spanish as the example. Spanish, I don't really need it. Only my mom and grandma speak Spanish in my life, but they also speak English. So why do I need Spanish? And so that's kind of that's where the that's where all the challenges stem from. Is that English is this giant, and the target language the target languages that families are pursuing, be it Spanish, French, Turkish, Arabic, they aren't really needed at the end of the day unless we as the parents show our kids they are needed or they are important they are this is something that, that we really value in our family um but it's hard it's hard to convince a kid who's seeing that english is all around them on the back of the cereal box on all the signs they drive past it's hard to convince them what's the point in speaking this other language because it, it's effortful and a child knows okay it's going to take me more effort to express these thoughts that i'm having especially a child who's older in school going to take more effort for me to tell my mom what happened at school today in Spanish it'll be way more easy or it'll be way easier in English and so the child's going to usually opt for the less effortful option I don't know if you have you seen that with the students you worked with and kids yeah just in general. yeah definitely a lot of times parents will come to me with the question like my child understands everything I'm saying to them, but they're answering me in English. How do I get them to answer mm -hmm. in the target language? Um, and it's tricky. I mean, it, it depends on the situation and the child's age. Um, but I think, you know, finding ways to make it important and significant for them, like in situations like Grupo Play, I think mm -hmm. is really, yeah. is really great. We have to almost get creative as parents of like, how can we invent the communicative need for Spanish yeah. in my child's life? Like at the end of the day, if they don't learn it, if they're going to live in the U.S., they are going to be okay. But we know as parents with the adult perspective, no, it's going to be so helpful if you know both languages, um, not only for kind of the convenience things of like getting a better job or being able to, to be able to travel, but also like if it is the family's heritage language, we as adults know you're going to want to connect with that when you're older so even though you don't think it's important right now as a seven-year-old with very limited perspective of the world i as your parent know that it's going to be important for you when you're older so that's that's why it's hard because we have this big perspective and our kids haven't been on the earth that long so they have a very limited perspective so that's why yeah like i said we have to be kind of creative and create situations where it is needed the language is needed and also make it fun so that it's wanted not just mm. needed not just a chore oh i have to speak this language because my grandma makes me but it's fun we want them to have like really happy childhood memories connected to that language and it be part of who they are like i know yeah like like my daughter she's half mexican i'm mexican-american i feel so connected to that side of me when we speak spanish i remember 
playing with my Poppy and playing with my little, she likes Pokemon right now. So playing with my little Pokemon with Poppy, but in Spanish or we camp, we go outside, we're very outdoorsy. So camping, when she thinks about camping when she's older and relating those memories to being filled with Spanish and happy memories. Um, that's that's one way we can kind of like create that communicative need or desire to learn the language is by linking it to what's important to kids, which is play and connecting with their important people in their lives. Um, but also, like you said, group of play. So seeing other kids that are bilingual, helping normalize it for them. Traveling, if you're ever able to travel, I know that's not as easy as just going to a play group, but um, that is always really good and eye-opening for the kids. Screen time, showing them like, hey, these are fun programs, but they're in Spanish. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've seen yeah, I think a lot of families who choose um, to do their screen time only in the target language to kind of make it that experience. Yeah. Like that's a bit of the compromise. Like you can have screen time, but it's going to be in Spanish or French or Mandarin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, you can learn. There's a lot of language. It's not going to be the sole educator of the language, obviously. You can't just, I can't just put on Russian TV for my daughter and hope she learns Russian. <laughs> but if we were like actively working on Russian and then she was also learning it from you know tv shows then it's a really good reinforcer of the target language for sure so yeah i also yeah. think it's a a great way for um children to be exposed to the changing contemporary language because i think oftentimes um families can like leave, leave their country and come to a new country and then the language almost fossilizes if they don't have enough, you know, relatives that they're speaking to who are still living in the language every day. So to hear those like new expressions and keeping it really yeah. modern and up to date, screen time is also yeah. great for that. Especially if they're seeing other kids speak it. Like um, this one example I'll give is that we recently found Master Se Master Chef Junior, Mexico. So I don't know if you're familiar with MasterChef as like the cooking show, um, but they have it where they it's set. There's actually a lot of countries that have done their own MasterChef. So they have MasterChef Mexico, but then recently they've made MasterChef Jun MasterChef Junior. Well, it's such a long title, MasterChef Mexico Junior, and it's eight to fourteen year olds that are competing. But it's so cool. It's been so fun to watch, and I'm actually surprised that my three and a half year old has like paid attention because it's. I would say it's probably best for like five and up just attention span wise, but my daughter's been loving it and it's been really cool because it's kids from Mexico talking and cooking and it's really, you know, they make it interesting and they have all these challenges, but it's cool to see unscripted, like a lot of times when we watch screen time, it's scripted, which is still good, but it's not the same as hearing unscripted speech. So it's unscripted little kids, well, to my daughter, they're big kids, but big kids talking and just having fun and being kids and like you said you're hearing the slang they're like ay está bien padre o que chido and you're hearing their little you know 13 year old 14 year old 8 year old spanish but that's highly motivating for a child especially when she's older we're going to watch it again and for her it's going to be like oh okay there's 8 year olds just like me but they live in mexico and they speak spanish 24/7 and so yeah there's a lot of a lot of ways to kind of to get the target language in front of our kids in a way that's going to be attractive, motivating, exciting for them. So that's such a good point about the unscripted television. Now I want to watch Master Chef Italy Junior and see yes. if I can understand the kids. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I bet the chefs in Italy are like amazing. <laughs> yeah, do they make um, dishes like 
is there like a different theme every week or do they yeah. like would the Italian show mostly be Italian food or would they also do like a Mexican food week or something like that? I'm sure they would because um, in the Mexico one, it is interesting because most of the time when, when the challenge is kind of open for interpretation, the kids are doing classic Mexican dishes that they're used to eating at home. So like one kid will be doing a mole, which is like a kind of like a stew. And then another kid will be like, oh, I'm going to do al pastor, that meat that's like marinated with pineapple. So they're doing Mexican dishes, but they're putting their own spin on them. But then sometimes the challenge is we're going to cook food from other countries or we're going to cook the classic American hamburger. Everyone has to make a hamburger and a milkshake. So I'm sure I'm sure mm -hmm. it's the other countries. Same. So really oh, fun. Cool. <laughs> All right. I will have to check that out. Um, so what advice would you give to parents like yourself who want to speak a language to their child that they're not fluent in? Um, or maybe are they maybe they're learning a language at the same time, or maybe it's a language that they feel very comfortable in, but it's not their first language. Right. Yeah. So like if someone wants to use their non-native language, um, there are lots of questions that come along with it. But the bottom line is use it. Use whatever you can of the language that you want to pass on to your kids or teach your kids or learn alongside with your kids. Um, there's no rules that are like, nope, sorry, unless you speak it perfectly, you can't use it with your kids. Unless you're a native speaker, you can't use it with your kids. And for me, I'm pretty equally comfortable in either language. Um, so I do try to put myself in, in other parents' shoes sometimes and think about what if I wanted to raise my kids in, in Portuguese and English? How would I go about that? And, you know, I minimally understand Portuguese just because of its similarity with Spanish and I have studied it to some degree, but it would be hard. And so it really would be a matter of learning it alongside my daughter. And that's that's a great way to make bilingualism part of your family's just kind of family culture is we all learn Portuguese together. Uh, the parent does not have to be an expert in the language in order to raise a bilingual child. There are so many resources out there. And yeah, just putting yourself in the learner's shoes is actually really helpful because one, you can kind of understand why it might be a little tricky sometimes for your kids, um, but it also shows them, hey, mom's learning too, or dad's learning too. And that really helps them kind of feel more comfortable about their own progress or less afraid of making mistakes. So parents can absolutely learn a language alongside their kids. Um, very encouraged. And then if, if the parent is like, let's say pretty fluent, but does find themselves having vocabulary gaps or how do you say, um, how do you say raccoon? I don't know. And there's going to be vocabulary gaps that come up like that if it's not your native language or even when it is the parent's native language, but they haven't spoken it for 20 years because they moved here when they were eight and they haven't needed to speak Spanish every day. They're not going to remember every single word ever either, especially obscure words like raccoon. And so in those situations, it's still absolutely fine to like, A, let your kid in on the fact that you don't know everything and be like, Oh, sí, mira, aquí tenemos un raccoon. Huh, ¿cómo se dice raccoon en español? And say, I don't, like, let's find out. I don't know how to say raccoon. And then you look it up and, oh, it's mapache. Okay, mapache, we have to remember that. Mapache, mapache. Um, so even like that. So even if you're fluent, but you find yourself having vocabulary gaps, let your kids in on that kind of process and let them know that you're not perfect either. You're still refining your language skills. Um, 
And kind of my bottom line is this, like use a language when you can and don't when you can't. So don't feel like you ha it has to be all or nothing where you're like, I'm only going to speak 100% Spanish. Oh no, I don't know how to talk about anything to do with the pool. I failed. And then no, like just either brush up on those, brush up on pool vocabulary, or if in the moment you don't have a way to do so, just use your English words to fill in the gaps. And then later on, like make a mental note for yourself. Okay, I need to refresh myself about pool vocabulary. Mm. Yeah. My, my. This is making me think of just today, I decided to change my phone's language to Italian, which I had done before. And I think I maybe got impatient with it and switched it back. So I hadn't done it for a while. And I was like, no, I'm going to stick with it. So it's like, I don't even think about the words that I see on my phone, but now everything looks different. And it really is making me think about, I didn't know that's how you say like, trying to think of what like airplane mode <laughs> you know I didn't know that's how you say airplane mode in Italian because I never have had to say that I can say airplane but I didn't know you know so even little things like that um yeah it's nice to just like try to find ways to get the language to surround you in any way that you can well exactly and now that you mentioned that that's another huge part of that that question of parents who are like okay I'm not fully fluent or I haven't used I'm rusty with my language it's not like you're supposed to as an adult have reached the end and then that's it you are continuously still learning even your native language so definitely your second language you're still learning it and it's good to make sure that you see how am i investing in my own bilingualism um because as as adults like we're so busy especially as parents we're so busy our main focus is the kids and everything we do is for the kids but we have to also remember that we're only going to be able to pour out our language input if we are also filling up our own cup. Um, so yeah, like invest in some language classes, even if it's like the way advanced level or a, a book club. I recently started a Spanish book club, but for adults for that very reason, like we need to invest in our own bilingualism and read some novels in Spanish and brush up on some vocab and do it for fun. Um, so yeah, definitely. I think that's really smart. I like the phone idea. Mine's in Spanish too. And people are always like, they look at my Instagram. They're like, why does it say 17 me gusta? And that's what it says. It says <laughs> seven, 17 likes. Instagram dealer just translated to me gustas. But yeah, so I love that idea. Very good. So what are some of the most common myths that you hear about bilingualism and, and what advice do you give to parents when trying to dispel them or trying to arm people with the information to dispel these myths? Yeah, that's so good. Um, the first one that always comes to mind is the big bad, big bad myth that is bilingualism causes language delays. And that one is everywhere parents are always like oh well they're, they're just going to speak way later than their peers because they're bilingual um, bilingualism is just going to cause lateness and delay or confusion and all of that is not true not true not true bilingualism does not cause language delay or confusion in fact most of the world is bilingual like bilingualism is the norm here in the states it's not the norm but around the world it is and we don't find higher rates of confusion all around the world so <laughs> that is just a silly idea um and it has been debunked like the the research shows that there's no there's no connection between bilingualism in childhood and language delay or confusion um so that was the bit that's the big one and so for parents 
advice would be to know to advocate for your bilingual child with the pediatrician, with um, maybe a speech or language evaluation that they get at school. Make sure the person who's evaluating them is very familiar with bilingualism. And if they're not, help to kind of educate them on, on how bilingualism works. Because a lot of times what will happen is if someone's evaluating a, let's say a bilingual three-year-old and the three-year-old knows a lot of words in Spanish, but only knows like a handful of words in English. If the person evaluating them doesn't know Spanish, they're only going to see this handful of words in English and think, oh, this child doesn't speak very much for their age. They speak all this gibberish, not realizing they're actually being very communicative in Spanish. Um, and then they're going to mark it as a delay. So that's kind of like a, a very basic description of what can happen. But it does. That happens. So just for parents to know, advocate for your child. The bilingualism you're doing at home is not leading to a language delay. Um, if your child does develop a language delay, very possible, just like a monolingual child can, you want to seek help um, from somebody who's going to understand from a bilingualism perspective what's going on with their language development. So that's the big one, big myth. Um, any any thoughts there? Any follow up? Yeah, questions? yeah. I, what it what it made me think of honestly is so I went to a college that was initially when it started in the 1800s this is a bit of a tangent my college initially was an all-girls school when it started in the 1800s and it went co-ed in 1969 and I cannot tell you I graduated in 2010 from college so the people I was I mean people I was going to school with knew that it was co-ed but I can't tell you how many people when I was going there asked me isn't that an all-girls school and most of these people who were asking me this were born after it went co-ed and I was just <laughs> like how does it still have this reputation like no it's been co-ed yeah. for so long you know so it kind of makes me think of that like this myth has been debunked for so long and yet it persists like yet people exactly. still think that bilingualism is going to cause delays but I I think I mean I'll have to brush up on the research but I think that like since the 80s, for sure, since the 90s, people have known that bilingualism didn't cause language delays. I think this is like a myth from the 60s and 70s, but it's shocking yeah. to me that it like still has such a stronghold, you know. Exactly. Exactly. We've known for decades with like very clear data that not true. Um, but yeah, it is funny how things just persist and just get passed down. I mean, that happens with so many things with misinformation and um but yeah, so that one's a big one. The other one I wanted to touch on is the fact that a lot of parents think they they know they want to raise a bilingual child, but there's so, so much of the information that's out there really presents only like one or two methods to do so. It's very limiting because those methods aren't necessarily going to fit well for every single family. It's like trying to sell a one-size-fits-all garment, but there's so many different body sizes. So same way, like there's so many different kinds of families, so many different language contexts. Um, some families have a bunch of extended family that also speaks the target language, which is going to be really helpful for them to maintain kind of a, uh, a lot of Spanish or target language input. But there's other families that only one parent speaks the target language and nobody in their kind of outer circle speaks it at all. They don't have family members that speak it. So those two families are going to approach raising bilingual kids very differently and so there are so many different ways to go about to go about raising a bilingual child um i list about 10 methods there, there's but there's a million 
iterations of those. But that's something to, take, to keep in mind. If you want to raise a bilingual child, it's not just one parent, one language, or all Spanish all the time. There are so many other ways to go about it. Like, like I said, I grew up bilingual in a monolingual home through lots of resources. And, and I wasn't fluent, fluent until late adult or late um, childhood, early adulthood. But that's okay. For a lot of parents, that's what we want. Like, if that's, if that's what we can do, we can lay a really strong base in bilingualism for our kids that they get to later pursue and continue running that race, then we've done an awesome job of laying that foundation. So families can go about bilingualism in so many different ways. I was going to say that before when you were when we were talking about um, like if if children respond to their parents in English, that we're still laying that foundation for them, that they mm -hmm. still are getting that input and then they can choose to study it later. Um, exactly. I think that's such an important thing to remember, too, that even if children are not using the target language all the time, that it's still it's still in there. Yeah, and I love that. And that's exactly a great way to think about it. You know, that is that is almost one of the number one questions or obstacles that I hear, hear from parents is my child. I know they understand the language, but they don't want to speak it. What do I do? And there are a lot of different methods. There's a lot of different not even methods, but strategies of how to kind of coax your child into speaking it more. Um, but the bottom line is that think about it like this. Your child understands the language. That's already a huge win. That's more than their monolingual friend Jimmy knows. They, sorry about any Jimmy's listening to this. We love Probably Jimmies. no um, Jimmy's listening. It's fine. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been a Jimmy in forever. Um, but yeah, so that's already a win. So for parents to kind of reframe it, like my child understands my native language. That's a huge win. Um, but like I said, there's strategies that you can use to yeah, kind of boost their productive language skills. I know, I know your page talks a lot about um, like the different methods, like the sandwich method or yeah. kind of just things that, you know, teachers will use in a classroom, but parents can use as well to up the the language, the elicit, the language that we're trying to elicit from our, our kids or get them to speak it. So there's lots of strategies that would be an entire podcast episode of itself. Um, but yeah, I like that idea of reframe it. Think about, wow, I have a child that completely understands my, or understands the target language. That's a really, that's a big win. On the topic of methods of bilingualism, when you were choosing to raise your daughter with only Spanish at home, did you ever think about doing one parent, one language or because you already spoke to your husband almost entirely in Spanish, was that just not the, an option that you considered? Yeah. I never, I never really thought about it as an option for us. I, I don't know exactly why. Maybe that is one of the reasons is like, I already spoke Spanish to my husband and why would I need to then be left out of the Spanish party at home? Um, but I think really the bigger one was that I know she's going to get so much English from everywhere else. And so being that I can speak Spanish fluently, my husband's native speaking, it was just the best option for our family, fitting our language context to use as much Spanish as we can and just elevate Spanish to the maximum of our abilities. Um, so that, and, and anybody else who's like, do I have to do one parent, one language? I typically say, and this is like one of the things that you would see in that methods handout that I have is that if you can use even in one parent one language even if there is an English speaking Spanish speaking parent but this English speaking parent knows a good amount of Spanish from classes and from being around the in-laws that English speaking parent should absolutely use that Spanish 
So if there is that ability, in the case where English is the majority language, because English essentially in that case is taken care of. So the English speaking parent might feel comfortable doing the majority of their interactions in English because that's their most comfortable language. But by all means, use Spanish when they're able to because you want to just increase that Spanish input for your kids because it's not going to be everywhere else. Mm. Um, yeah. But of course, it'd be different if you're in France and we have an English speaking parent and a Spanish speaking parent. Those are two minority languages. They're both trying to get as much input as they can since French will be taken care of. Mm. But yeah, that's why there's so many. There's so many methods because there's, there's so, so many, many methods. Yeah, like so many different contexts. Yeah, and I was thinking about um, my friends who. Well, so we we sort of touched on this, but what um, what advice would you give to a parent who is the only source of that language in their child's life? Like I'm thinking of my friends who are, you know, in the US and the husband only speaks English and the wife is from Sweden. And so when they go to Sweden to visit her family, they'll the child will understand, you know, and speak Swedish. But in the US, their son's only Swedish person is the mom. Yeah, that's that's tough. And that happens often. That is a family language context that we see often. And I know that's a heavy burden for that target language speaking parent. Um, so just one, I want that parent to know they're doing a good job and it is a heavy thing to carry. Um, the biggest thing is just to keep going with it as much as that parent is able to. And then additionally, look for other resources to help lessen that burden so that it's not fully on you. Um, Swedish is a harder language to find in terms of, you know, books at the library or screen time. Um, yeah, or play groups. That's one of my like go-to <laughs> recommendations. Try to find other families, but I think that's harder than Spanish or French. <laughs> exactly, for sure. Um, one, it would be one. Know that you're going to have to kind of go out of your way a little bit more to find people. So you might want to think about. Okay, I'm going to put a little message out there on our Facebook group for the entire. Let's say they're in Northern Virginia because that's where I am. Put out a message for everybody in the entire Washington, D.C. area, because if you're just looking like 10 minutes from your own house, you're probably not going to find other Swedish speakers. But if you put out a bigger mm -hmm. net of like the entire DMV, which is D.C., Maryland, Virginia, if you put out that whole the net that be your net, you might find a couple other families. And that's not sustainable to meet with them every day if they're like two hours away. But have in your expectations that. Bilingualism is something we have to be really intentional about. We have to work for it. And if I can find two other families that speak Swedish within a two-hour radius and we can meet up once a quarter, that's still a win. Like that's still like I'm going to look forward to that once a month or once every quarter meetup um, because pe finding people that are like-minded in their ideas of bilingualism and speak your target language is a huge blessing and it's worth going out of our way for. So that's one thing. But then also with COVID, with so many things having to go virtual, there's a lot more resources out there on the on the internet, on the interwebs than there were ever before. So you might be able to find a teacher in Sweden who offers classes. The time difference might be t uh, a little tricky, but look for what you can find, even in those languages that necess aren't necessarily as easily found in the States or wherever you are see what's available because yeah it's yeah. it's hard to be the only input source it's hard yeah i think that's great advice um 
to, if you can't find people in your local area to turn to the internet, because there are definitely other families, even if it's like a little zoom meeting with other families once a month, once a quarter. Or all of the the Facebook groups that are like, like I have the bilingual parenting network, but then there's like so many, there's families raising multilingual kids and um, there's Facebook groups where you could put out that, yeah, like a kind of like a, a call for, hey, who else is raising Swedish speaking kids? Let's do a Zoom meetup, you know, once a month and the parents can talk and then the kids can say hi to each other and see that there's other kids that speak Swedish. So yeah, I think the internet is a huge, huge resource that we have that wasn't yeah. available 10 years ago. So yeah. And I think people are um, so much more open to doing virtual things like that mm-hmm. now, post COVID, I think, whereas exactly. maybe it wasn't something that we would have thought to do with young children before right. it, it has become more of a, more of a possibility. Yeah. And even if it really is like the moms are going to get together and talk in Swedish and, you know, have like a coffee date virtually, but like kids are welcome to come in and drop by. Any time that I've done, um, whether it's like my group of play leader trainings or the book club, anytime that I have like an adult thing where we're talking in Spanish, there's there's kids that come over curious. I mean, I see kids all the time on my kid classes, but even when it's the adults talking, the kids wander over and then they see other kids and then they're like, oh, like, mira, dile hola, ahí está Santi, dile hola, Santi. And just that little, little tiny interaction is like, oh, cool. Like it, it'll help boost the target language in their mind because it shows them that there's other people speaking it. Yes. And that goes back to what we were talking about before about them seeing it as something that's alive and necessary Mm -hmm. and useful and needed. Mm -hmm. So they see, even if they're not using it with their peers, they see their parents using it with other people. I think that's also really valuable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I know we're, we could literally talk for 5 million hours, (laughs) but I don't want to forget this one point because that is really, that's a really good point that you bring up is for our kids to see us using the target language with our peers because there's actually um there's studies i'm thinking of one study specifically where they looked at this girl who was learning i want to say it was like gaelic something in ireland or scotland or something and it was a language that very much she did not need it was definitely just kind of for heritage purposes and she had so many adults in her life speaking to her in this language Yet she refused to speak it. And the end of the study, what was shown was that she never once saw any of the adults talking Gaelic to each other. So it was only in her mind, this kind of top down language. Adults speak to kids in this language, but they never use it with each other. And so for her, there was no motivation. Like peers don't use this language together. Um, I don't speak, I don't see anybody else using this language. It's only for adults to use down to kids. And so if we think about that, we want to show, even if we don't have like our best friend that speaks the target language, if we can show them even in little ways, like the book club or like a group of play where, hey, look, mommy speaks in this language with her friends sometimes or with her sister or with her parents, and they see it as like a peer-to-peer language, it can really, really elevate that language in their, in their mind. And it doesn't have to be all the time because parents will be like, well, my husband and I both speak Spanish, but we rarely speak it together because like English is our dominant language. We were both born in the States. We never use Spanish together. It's really hard to like, I'm not going to be like, okay, well, you need to start learning speaking Spanish together all the time. You, you establish your relationship in a language and it kind of, it'd be hard to uproot that. But if your kids can see you every now and then, like, hey, even mom and dad to each other use Spanish, even if it's not all the time, it really does um, 
there's so many things that messages that we send to our kids about language that we don't realize or we think they're not conscious of they pick up on a lot of messages even if they're subliminal messages about bilingualism about language about the value of languages and so if we can be conscious of that and like send positive messages about our language it's really helpful really good yeah i think that's such an important point i'm yeah i'm really glad you said that um it is so important that uh we're sending children positive messages even um subtly about bilingualism Mm -hmm. about language use yeah yeah Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know this was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Kayla for joining me for this conversation. You can find out more about Kayla as well as Bilinguitos and Grupo Play at bilinguitos.com and on Instagram at bilinguitos. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.